I began our reflections last week by posing a question to you. Why is it that so many of the important relationships of our lives that start out so beautifully end so poorly or so disappointingly? In the early stages of a relationship, our sense of connection with somebody else is driven by those kinds of desires. We have this profound passion to link our life with these people that come into our workplaces and our homes and our, our friendship circles. But then over time, we begin to face the fact that these people that we are in relationship with are very different from us. We've been blinded at the start to this reality. We may have cursorily acknowledged it, but now we begin to experience the consequences of being in relationship with somebody who is made very differently, comes at life and and has habits that are different than ours, somebody who is every bit as imperfect as we are. And the friction of dealing with this reality begins to weigh on us, begins to test our relationship and our capacity for communication with one another. As we explored in much greater depth last week, it's in this particular stage of the relationship that many of us resort to a pattern of speaking to each other that is not particularly helpful, that doesn't do any great favors to our relationship. We start talking to one another in a way that involves criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and outright stonewalling. It got very quiet in the room last week when I really described what those behaviors involved and what they looked like in relationships. It got very quiet in here. It got very uncomfortable inside of my own belly as I was talking about them. And I think it's because we all live here. In various ways and to various degrees, we all have gotten involved in this kind of way with words in many of our relationships, maybe our most important ones. Obviously, no single bad uh, interaction like this is uh, fatal to a relationship, but the cumulative effect of this pattern of speaking, this poor way with words, is devastating on our relationships. It makes the kite of our connections plummet far below what we ever expected when we went into these relationships. And in many cases, it will bring the relationship crashing down completely. My brothers and sisters, writes James, this should not be. This shouldn't be. This is not what we want our relationships to be about. This should certainly not be for those whose life is driven by the desire to follow Jesus. Don't you want to ascend to the level of remarkable relationships? Don't you want to move beyond the regular kind and find your way into the realm of remarkable relationships? It is always possible to move there. No matter how badly the kite may have crumpled and crashed, it is possible by the grace of God to be lifted up again in our capacity for relationships. But it requires developing a much wiser way with words than is our frequent pattern. 
And in our Bible text for today, James helps us by explicitly defining what that way of wisdom looks like. In the text that we read a moment ago, James defines the character of wisdom very clearly. James writes, the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And so what I want to do with you this morning is invite you to think with me about what it would look like to let that kind of wisdom inform our words with each other more than maybe they currently are. I want us to start imagining what it might look like to live this wisdom in practice in the way that we speak with one another and just see what God does with that in our relationships. Are you up for that? Okay. Well, one way of thinking about all of this is to imagine purposefully replacing those weighty words that we so frequently attach to the kite string of our conversations with four very different ways of speaking with one another. I want to invite you to think of these different ways of speaking as like balloons, as opposed to those weights we talked about last week. These ones are balloons. And each of these balloons has got up power to them because they are filled with the spirit of wisdom, as James describes it to us. Now, Doug McKinley, a former staff member of this church and a very seasoned uh, marriage and family therapist, says that in the many couples and families that he counsels, and in fact the many uh, business and corporate executives that he now coaches, that he, the first replacement that he advises most of them to make is a fundamental shift from a pattern of criticism to a pattern of encouragement. We have got to replace our tendency to criticize with a prevailing tendency to encourage. Now, as I said last week, every significant relationship is going to have to involve a certain amount of conversation about performance, right? In the opening stages of a relationship, we never go there. Everything's just hunky-dory. We couldn't be more pleased with the performance of everybody involved. But as you go along in life with people, whether in the workplace or in the home or in friendship, sooner or later, you have to start talking about what you expect and about how others are, are de- doing with expectations. There has to be a place in a real relationship, beyond a romantic one, there has to be a a place to file complaints, right? Earnest complaints. There has to be a, a place where we can lodge reasonable requests, where we can give important feedback. In fact, the value of relationships is that real ones give us a place to get feedback so that we grow and and sharpen and develop as people. The reality, however, is that we're often chronically critical in the way we come at complaints. It's not just complaints, it's not earnest feedback, it's, it's laced with this anger or this judgment or this condemnation that is the soul of, of criticism. And, and, and this criticism isn't wise. We think it is. We think that we're being motivated by truthfulness and a desire to tell the other people exactly what they need. But the way we do it works against that purpose. James says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure. It's pure-hearted. 
It's full of mercy and good fruit. Think about that for a moment. Our words are meant, our complaints to each other are meant to be filled with mercy and good fruit. Now to be filled with mercy is to be filled with a willingness to cut people slack. McKinley says that it is the relational equivalent of the golfing uh, habit of granting mulligans to your closest golfing partners. We have to be willing to extend mercy. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. It's not giving them the punishment that they may deserve. To be full of good fruit means that you enter into the conversation in a manner that is deliberately patient, kind, good-hearted, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. To have a conversation that is filled with wisdom, the kind that comes from heaven, means that it will be approached in that kind of spirit. In other words, if I cannot cannot speak my mind in this way, I shouldn't speak. I should count to ten. I should count to ten million if that is what is needed. And maybe the entire time I'm counting to ten million, I'm praying, God, fill me with the fruit of your spirit. Fill me up more so I can communicate my concerns wisely to this other person. I should raise a complaint only when I'm able to do it in that way. Now that, now that is hard. That is hard. But if I intend to be a follower of Jesus, and I'm not just playing at it, this is how I have to come at complaint. No exceptions. If I don't care about being a follower of Jesus, I'm free to blast away. And then I'm free to live with the less than remarkable relationships I'm going to get as I do that. To be full of good fruit also means to be somebody able to feed other people with what they need to be their best. God gives us the fruit. He fills us with the fruit so that we can feed people. And what is it that people need to be at their best? I submit to you, it is encouragement. People need encouragement to raise above the common level. By encouragement, I don't mean empty praise. I don't mean empty compliments. Empty compliments and praise are like cotton candy. They taste sweet to the mouth for about a second, right? And then they just leave you with this kind of sticky sense that that wasn't real, that that wasn't particularly filling. Don't make up stuff to say to people. Don't make up stuff. James says, the wisdom that comes from heaven is sincere. But if we can't sincerely spot things in other people, even the ones with whom we disagree, that are worth commending and encouraging, I think we're just not looking hard enough. 
If we can't come up with a much, much longer list of what people are bringing to the party of life than that list of what they're failing to bring, then I submit to you we're just too consumed with our own list of what we're bringing and our frustration that other people aren't appreciating all the things that are on that list. It is a fundamental truth in human nature that we always receive and respond better to constructive complaint when that complaint is brought to us by somebody that we know sees the very long list of what we're doing right, of what we're bringing of value, and couches their concern in the context of that much longer list. Right? I mean, that's a law of human nature. So the more you're able to notice and name the value that other people are bringing in your home or your workplace, the more that you've helped them celebrate the value they're bringing. One of the most neglected patterns of encouragement is is not saying to people, I'm so proud of you. I so liked the way you did that. But instead saying, how'd that feel to you to do that the way you did and to see that result and that response from other people? How'd that feel to you? And just watch them. Really take it in and really fill up and really become more ready than they were 10 minutes before to listen to anything else you might say. People will be far readier to listen to us, to change based on our feedback, to seek to be an even greater blessing if they believe we believe they already are a blessing. Encourage people ten times more than you criticize them. As we explored last week, if people are consistently fed more criticism than encouragement in a relationship, if they're consistently getting a diet of critique that is much richer than the encouragement they're getting, it will eventually become contempt for the critic. Bank on it. It will turn to contempt. And contempt is this deep and angry sense of hurt and resentment that can be summarized in these words, you don't get me. And you don't even care to. You don't get me. You don't even care to. And this is why some of us really need to keep working at attaching to our conversations the second kind of of word balloon. We have to learn how to speak with greater empathy than we currently speak. Now, a lot of us tend to confuse sympathy with empathy. Sympathy is when I say, I see, I see somebody come in at the end of the day and I say, oh, I'm sorry you had a bad day, honey. I can see from the expression of your face, I'm sorry that you had a bad day. Or I feel badly that you're ticked off at me now. I'm so sorry that we're having this fight because it makes me feel badly. That's sympathy. Sympathy seems compassionate. It is definitely better than apathy. But in the end, sympathy is about who? Me. 
It's about how I feel in the face of circumstances. I feel sorry for that person. I feel this. I feel that. Empathy, however, is identifying with what somebody else feels. Empathy is when I say, I don't understand what you've been through today, but I want to. Tell me what happened. Tell me more about what happened. Tell me more. What did that feel like? What were you thinking? Wow. Wow. That would have been tough. Empathy is working to get inside somebody else's shoes. Working to get inside their heart and mind and experience. How many of you have heard the term emotional intelligence? Raise your hand if you've heard the term EQ or emotional intelligence. We know that that, that's shorthand now in our culture for somebody who's effective at relationships. In fact, employers these days are looking every bit as much for people with high EQ as people with high IQ. And the coiner of that particular phrase was a Harvard psychologist by the name of Daniel Goleman. Daniel Goleman says that empathy is the fundamental people skill. Empathy is the first capacity you must cultivate if you're going to be effective in relationships. The most remarkable leaders, the best parents, the most uh, amazing spouses, friends, are always marked by this capacity for empathy. And it's not just a gift that you're given. It's not something that you're just wired with. It's something you have to develop a skill at. People around empathetic people feel that person gets me. And they care to. To get me. The Bible's word for empathy is consideration. The Bible is full of encouragements for us to consider each other. To consider something is to really work at getting it. In his letter to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul says, consider others better than yourselves. People have misread that particular text. They think that Paul is saying, think of other people as better than you. It's not what Paul's saying here. If you look at the full text, what comes before and what comes after, what Paul is really saying is, don't just look at life from the point of view of your interests. That's vain. That's selfish, says Paul. Spend more time considering what it's like to walk in other people's shoes, to be living life from their point of view. In fact, Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2 and says, and I quote, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on in the remainder of that uh, chapter in Philippians to describe the lengths that Jesus went to come and walk in our shoes. Now, if anybody, if anybody was ever in a position to demand that other people preoccupy themselves with seeing life from his point of view, it was God, right? It should be God. He's the one 
that we should all be trying to, 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 to get close to, to understand, to empathize with. But if he could cross eternity to get into our shoes instead, if he cared enough to try and empathize with humanity, can we cross the kitchen? Can we cross the office? Can we cross the street, the schoolroom, to empathize a bit more with other people? Can we do this? The wisdom that comes from heaven, writes James, is what? Considerate. It's just considerate. It stretches, it stoops, it sacrifices to get into the shoes of others. So the next time, we're all bound up with contempt for each other. And we'll be there. Uh, Next time, we're all wrapped up in this. Because that person doesn't get me. (laughs) That person apparently doesn't care to get me. If we could stop and say instead, I'm so sorry, there I go again. There I go again. All wrapped up in myself, my interests, my point of view. Please, help me understand better what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Help me. Help me to get you. It is enormously difficult, I have found myself, to say I I was wrong. It's incredibly hard to admit that you're kind of lousy at relationship stuff at times, especially when you're somebody's supposed to be about this professionally. It's difficult to admit that. I was wrong. I blew it. As we explored last week, most of the time when somebody comes at us, especially if they come at us critically, not empathetically, but contemptuously, we just get defensive, right? We give all kinds of reasons for why what we did was right or why what we didn't do we shouldn't have done. Uh, We go on the attack, right? We do this. We shift the focus back on the other person, finding fault in them. But if you had done this, I feel like I'm a master at this defensiveness game. But this way, with words, friends, again, only if we're followers of Jesus, but if we are, this has to change. It, it just is not, it's just not the way of wisdom. If we want our connections with other people to rise higher, we have to bend lower. We have to bend lower. If we want better relationships, we've got to replace defensiveness with forgiveness. And forgiveness almost always starts with somebody, somebody confessing, I've blown it. The Apostle Paul was remarkably good at this. People think of him as a guy that's always challenging and pushing, but no, if you read his letters from start to end, you're amazed at how many times he's confessing his sense of unworthiness, of failure. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul confesses in these words. He says, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do. This I keep doing. When was the last time you turned to somebody significant in your life, somebody you're supposed to be having a remarkable relationship with, and you said something like that to them? 
You know, I just want to be so much better for you. I just want to perform better in this relationship. But I just keep going back into my old patterns. And the good I want to do, I just somehow don't do. And the bad that I've sworn I'm not going to do, there I go again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for being such a sinner and for failing you. I was unkind. I was insensitive. I was selfish, irresponsible. You asked me to do this. I, I didn't do it. You were counting on me not to do this. I did it. You deserve better from me. I'm so sorry. When was the last time you let go of defensiveness and asked for forgiveness? James says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is peace-loving. It speaks words aimed at ending the attack and defend cycle. You been in that before? That attack and defend go round, right? You been there? And the instinct is to think, well, if I just make my point more explicitly or creatively or pointedly, I'll end the battle. I'll show the other person I'm right. How's that working for you? It's not worked well for me. For peace to be established, somebody has to break the cycle. Confession helps to break the cycle. Not guaranteed, but it's one of those things that just alters the chemistry of the conversation. When somebody asks for forgiveness, now the other side has to counter, right? The other side has to change the dance step too. The other person has to be willing to reconcile the relationship, to receive the offer of peace that the other person is extending. It takes a submissive spirit to do that. It requires a willingness to surrender your right to get even, your right to be right. So let me make this clear. We don't have to do that. You don't have to forgive anybody. In fact... People mess up so consistently in the same ways that it is very understandable if you choose to say or I choose to say, hey, there is too much wrong here. There is nowhere near enough change here. You're not getting a break from me. I'm trading you in for a better model. And that's a good strategy. And it's being used all over the world. But those who have tried that strategy will come back eventually and tell you that the chief difficulty with it is every model is broken. Every model is flawed. You exchange one sinner, one set of patterns for another. You get through the romantic phase and there you are again, all over again, living with a sinner, working with a sinner, walking alongside a sinner. Guess what? They're stuck with you too. With me too. 
if we can't find a way to forgive people, it's not just our relationships that are at stake. Not just the ones we have with people that are at stake. It's the condition of our own heart that is the wellspring of life that gets damaged by unforgiveness, resentment, anger, bitterness, hurt. It's also our relationship with God Himself that is in jeopardy when we can't forgive. Jesus said, with the measure of forgiveness you use with others, it will be measured to you. So here are the questions it's wise, I think, for us to sit with. Do I want to cling to the resentments that are killing my own heart? Secondly, how big a measuring cup of grace do I want God to use with me? And thirdly, to whom do I need to say today, you are forgiven? So that when it comes my time, I might hear those words spoken to me. We are out of time this morning, so let me just touch on one last verbal balloon that it makes sense to attach to the kite string of our relationships more if we can. Our relationships can become better than they are today. That's the big headline, right? They really can. They can become better. They will become better if we will replace criticism with encouragement more. If we will replace contempt with empathy more. If we will replace defensiveness with forgiveness more. And finally, if we can substitute the pattern of stonewalling, of just refusing to deal with a person, if we can replace that with a new commitment to really and truly and deeply listening, it can change everything. And it will be that absolutely and fascinating topic of listening to which we'll return when we gather next week. Would you please pray with me? Lord, words are, are weighty things. And we have felt the weight of unwise words dragging down some of those key connections in our lives. But words are also wonderful things. They can, they can be like bits that turn a stallion. They can be like rudders that alter the course of a massive ship. They can be like a spark that sets ablaze a new and better kind of bonfire. 
And so, Lord, help us to speak wisely. Give us that wisdom that comes down from heaven. And enable us, Lord God, between now and the next time we get together, to have spoken a few more words of encouragement, of empathy, of forgiveness, as we truly listen to one another through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.